Did you have a little bit more trouble saying thanks be to God this morning for that word? I uh, tell you what, uh, today I'm aware we have several uh, guests with us. Just such a, I'm just a welcome to you. Very grateful that you're here at Bayless. Uh, if you have any questions about anything that is said or done in our service, we want to make ourselves available to you. It's, uh, I'm one of the last people to leave here. I love answering questions after service. Please do grab a card. I think you can find some of those. We'll tuck some in the offering boxes at the back of the uh, auditorium. But um, we, today, uh, you'll want find out very quickly about our church that we, uh, we um, want to make clear what God has said. And we want to say that all that God has said is good for us, even if it's hard to swallow some of it. It's only a matter of time before our, the word of God steps on our toes. And I think this is a passage that tends to mash on them a little bit. You know, but it's even a little bit more awkward because in this series, uh, which we're on the church, we normally we go through a book of the Bible. We take one passage at a time. And so on difficult passages like this, I'm able to say, well, it's not my fault. It's just the next text. I picked this one, so why in the world would I pick a passage like the today? So as we're talking about what is the church, the nature of the church, we've been talking about different questions about what does it mean to belong to a church. This is one we must talk about, and it really is the, the, uh, the follow-up to what we discussed last week about membership, about does someone really need to become a member of a church? Does someone really need to join a church? We learned last week that actually, technically speaking, uh, that question uh, is already answered for us by the, by the Bible. We, we don't, the first question is not whether we should join a church. God, Jesus has joined us to the church already. It's bound up with the gospel. When he saves us, he, he gives us a family. And in his wisdom, he, he gives us a family we probably wouldn't have picked on our own. And it says, it, nonetheless, are you going to make those commitments public? That's what the Bible intends, is to make those commitments to a local body of believers public. Um, and it's, it's how, you in, how you show off that you are a, a believer, not just a solitary one, but part of this new global family that God is gathering. Membership is absolutely bound up in, in what it means to be a Christian, even though our practices for it today may you not find necessarily delineated in the scriptures. But we find also that membership is bound up with a kind of authority, which is also strange to talk about today, that the church has been given an authority from Jesus Christ himself, a local church, to affirm two things. What is the true gospel? And what is one who has hoped in that gospel? Who, the what and the who, to go public with those, so far as we can tell, who are the believers in a particular place and time. That's what membership is seeking to do, not to add expectations to the Christian life, but to go public with something that Jesus intends for us to go public about, to affirm, so far as we know, these are the Christians here. And the church has done that in a few different ways. Historically, they've done so through the practice of the ordinances, through the Lord's Supper, and through baptism. It's how they call out regularly who those Christians are, but also in the practice of church membership, especially in a day and age where you were very easy to church shop, maybe for your entire life, or to hop on down to the next church down the row once they step on your toes a little. Church membership helps us over time to belong to a place where people can encourage us, we can stir others on to good, to love and good works, but all of that was last week, and I'm not going to preach that sermon again. This is part two. Because if the authority of the church is to affirm the Christian, sometimes out of necessity, a church would need to remove that affirmation. As strange as it is, in the Bible, it assumes that there is a place in time where Jesus himself would have the church say, so far as we know, this is not a Christian. Does that feel judgmental to you? 
we're going to look at the passage today, and you could say uh, the situation in 1 Corinthians 5 could not be messier. You know, we're pretty far removed from these details a couple thousand years later, and so it's hard to be definitive about what has happened in this circumstance and situation, but it seems that one of the church members, specifically a particular man, is caught up in a very public sexual sin. Now, I'm going to be I'm going to be PG about this. I'm not going to go into deep detail, but without being too crude, it seems that the man was in an ongoing intimate relationship with his stepmother. And the fact that the church that he's a part of in Corinth was so passive about it, about this particular relationship, it didn't just shock Paul. You know, it, according to Paul, it shocked the rest of the world. It shocked those who didn't even share their Christian faith, which is a pretty big deal if you come to know much about Corinth. I've heard it described that Corinth would be like if you took Las Vegas and New Orleans and San Francisco and you blended them up into one city. That was the equivalent in the first century world, Corinth. They weren't exactly prudish or shy when it came to uh, 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 sexual intimacy. As Gordon Fee points out, the Corinthians were known for saying, this is a quote from some of the Corinthians, listen to this, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. Yikes. It's ugly. We're talking a culture that where not just prostitution, but pedophilia was the norm. And they were shocked about what was happening in the church. Paul, in horror, tells them what to do. And what he tells them to do may to some of us seem even more horrible. Remove him. It even uses the langu language of purge him. Don't even eat with him. In fact, notice the language of verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So much for a gospel of grace and all that Ray and I were talking about, right? So what about, where is the grace found here for someone like this? Depending on your experience, the whole subject of what we're going, what has been described as church discipline might make you really uncomfortable. I can still remember the sermons in which my pastor preached on this when I was even a young child and how disorienting it was for me. It can seem like one of the most unloving things in the world that you could do, something that would pull the carpet out from all Christian claims about being a community of grace and mercy. And yet for some of us, it causes an almost automatic nerve uh, reaction, an automatic knee reflex, because we know someone who's experienced per it firsthand, and, and we may have experienced it firsthand. Still others may agree with the principle of church discipline in theory, but have no idea if it's possible in a church today, especially when it's so easy to go find another one. Trust me, I know. Friends, I, I should tell you up front, I'm not going to be able to answer all of your questions as it pertains to church discipline in one sermon. I would love to talk with you after service to find out more of your, ex your experience, to share even more of some practical implications that I've thought through about what this looks like today. And I, I, I even more can't promise that you're going to be giddy about all of this at the end. My hope, though, is that you see the why behind church discipline. 
why it is linked with everything we have said in this series about the church, and why even more so, I think, why it is actually directly connected to love. And if we are to take it seriously, it might actually make us into a more loving community than we were to begin with. Today, we're going to look at the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 5, and thank you, Sandy, for reading it today. And we're going to just ask two questions. When I first started preparing this sermon, we, w- we were going to go with five, but I've done two. So the first is, and all God's people said, yes, amen, hallelujah. Okay, what is it? And number two, why in the world would we do it? Why, what is it? And why would we do it? We're going to look at two types and three reasons. So let's start with that first question. What is it? What is this boogeyman we call church discipline? Well, before we zoom in on this particular situation of church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, and it is the most extreme form, trust me, we're going to get there. We need to say a little bit more about what is meant by the word discipline in the scriptures. Actually, the Bible has a very wide category as it pertains to discipline. In fact, many theologians have split them into two. You have formative discipline, and you have Corrective discipline, formative discipline, and corrective discipline. Both are important, and both work hand in hand to produce something, to cultivate something. But perhaps the best way I can describe them is by way of analogy. Let's start with the first, formative discipline. What do you mean? Okay, so let me ask you, how many of you have, so- you have something about your health that has you concerned right now? Some portion of your health you're keeping an eye on. Okay, or a loved one. How many of you have, uh, your doctor wants you to be working on something right now? I mean, I want you to now tell that to your neighbor. I'm just kidding. I don't want you to do that. The, when it comes to a healthy body, though, when you have a, he- having a healthy body, what are some of the things that you have to keep in mind? If you want to enjoy what it means to be healthy, well, to, be, to have a healthy bi- body means, first, you have to have the right habits to care for your body on a daily basis. By exercising, by eating a balanced diet, by getting enough sleep, by putting on sunscreen, by drinking lots of water. Anybody feel guilty at this point? Lots of things that cultivate a healthy body over time that there's no microwave solution for. All sorts of preventative and proactive decisions that day after day going into nurturing health. All sorts of things that there, again, is no shortcut for. This is what you might call, or you could use as the analogy of, what formative discipline is. It's the first kind of discipline, is that effort. Like eating a healthy diet and staying active, formative discipline is the kind of priorities that go into nurturing a healthy soul over time. Regular reading and meditating upon the Bible. Prayer. Being in a worship service Sunday after Sunday. Being in regular Christian friendships where you're vulnerable and you stir one another on to good works. Serving others. This, over time, is the well-balanced meal of a Christian that nurtures a healthy soul. And there is no short circuit for it. These examples of formative uh, discipline, again, Uh, are sometimes referred to by theologians as spiritual disciplines. That's why they're called that, spiritual disciplines. But then there's a second kind, and that's what we're going to look at today, and that's corrective discipline. And again, going back to the same analogy, what else does it take to nurture a healthy body over time? 
not the, the only thing that a body requires is not just a healthy diet and exercise. What happens when something goes wrong? Um, just a couple days ago, two days ago, in fact, I got a call from my wife uh, who had ripped off her front toenail. Yeah, you can write it. It's like, like, it's like really, it was, and she called me in a panic, about to pass out. Felt terrible for her. Anybody ever done something like this? You know, uh, right away, I was on with my siblings who work in the medical industry. I'm very grateful for both of them who are a lot smarter than me. And you know what both of them told me to do? Or I should say what neither of them told me to do when she ripped off her toenail. They didn't tell me to go make a big salad for her or to have her go on a run. Formative discipline was not helpful at that point, right? They were immediately concerned about that toe being bandaged and disinfected. The problem is, is... uh, when I came to help my wife, no matter how gentle I was, uh, I could not do so. I could not help her without causing her severe pain. Uh, and I, I was just miserable as a husband. I'm just trying to do something and feeling terribly unhelpful. So why not leave it alone then if it's causing so much pain and discomfort? Well, because if it wasn't treated right, an injured toenail would be the least of my wife's worries. This is what you could refer to as corrective discipline. And just like caring for your body may require direct and even painful intervention, sometimes a church body requires direct and painful intervention as well. When it comes to caring for a body, you might need to swallow bitter pills. You might need to have a bone reset. You might even need to go under, undergo surgery. Why would you do so if it causes you quite a bit of pain? Because if you don't, something much worse is coming along the way. The church, just like a body, needs corrective discipline so that a small problem doesn't become a large problem, and a large problem does not become a deadly one. And not all corrective discipline is alike. In fact, there is no one-size-fits-all solution, uh, just as there wouldn't be for your body. It exists somewhat on a spectrum, depending on what kind of issue it is, depending on the size of the issue, the more serious and potentially uncomfortable the treatment is going to be. We need to say in 1 Corinthians 5, what we're finding is the most extreme form of church discipline, what is known as formal church discipline, in which, just to be very clear, here's what's being expected here. The man who identifies as a Christian will no longer be welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper and will be removed as a member. Now, they didn't have the same membership processes, but they would, knew, they, would, they would make clear to him that he was no longer viewed as a part of that family. doesn't mean that they were necessarily kicking him out of the worship gatherings, just as today with church discipline. That's not necessarily the case. There are some who may be under active church discipline who continue to be in a worship gathering. To hear the gospel could be the better place for it. To be in a community that's continuing to love and support them. But nonetheless, it is a very public and a very extreme thing. And who is doing so? Who is bringing us about? It's not just the leaders of a church, but it's members. We need to say, though, regardless of this extreme form, it is the rarity and not the rule, but corrective, uh, again, corrective discipline actually happens uh, at a lot of different stages. It happens in many informal ways. Corrective discipline, even when it may not look like this, which I hope is a, again, rarity, it happens every time, actually. A 
another member tries to correct another member. Every time a difficult conversation takes place between a believer and another believer who love one another and recognize they have a responsibility for one another. Every time a believer tries to risk correction, risk a conversation they would rather not have, tries to intervene in some way, it could be a small and very private way, or it could be in a very public one. You're seeing corrective discipline take place. It's usually, and the norm of a church, a healthy church, would have actually ongoing, small, loving, persistent interventions, and those would make all the difference. After all, let me use the example of a body again. How many of you have ever seen someone who knows they need to go to the doctor and refuses? And then what happens at the end of that? How much worse is the problem when it actually takes place? Where the problem has grown much worse, how much it would have been saved if it had been addressed sooner? In the same way, the smaller, informal, often private conversations keep, again, a smaller, less destructive sin from becoming a larger, more destructive one. But that being said, even though this public church discipline is the rarity and not the rule, even it is the most extreme form, I think we might we can find reasons behind why we would practice church discipline at all. And that leads to number two. Now, that was a really short point. Don't, I'm not going to get your hopes up. Number two is a long one. So we're going to look at why would we do it. So uh, today, um, as we were just talking about, is uh, my, uh, tw- my anniversary. I'm only 12th anniversary. What was it? 57? Is that right, Ray? 57 years. And the Dasho is celebrating 51 years. I'm just like, I'm the kindergartner here, okay? So 12 years, uh, but we celebrate with our kids every anniversary, what we call our family birthday. Uh, It's when God brought our family together, and we get to celebrate why God was good in making this family. And uh, we had pizza and watched a movie, watched The Sandlot or something like last night. So we uh, we, uh, celebrate what God has done since we made our vows to each other. And this weekend, particularly, Grace and I have been reflecting on lo- a lot on what it means to be a family, what it means actually to be parents, to raise children. You know, some days it just feels like we need to keep our four alive through the next day. I mean, they're, they're young, it's a lot of chaos, and a lot of tears. But in reality, uh, God has actually given our children to us for a much different and bigger purpose than that. Not just to keep them alive. We are raising what we are, hope, are hopeful will be healthy, God-fearing adults. We are raising grown-ups. Let me ask you, in raising an adult, someone who loves the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loves their neighbor as themselves, if that's what you hope to, again, pro- see produced over time, again, I cannot save my children, I pray for them regularly, but if God would choose to, what is, what is my role in that? What goes into nurturing them? Well, just like nurturing a body— It takes all sorts of proactive and preventative decisions on their behalf. All sorts of formative discipline. All sorts of things that they need to, uh, that we over time hope shape them into men and women of character. But you can probably guess that once or twice they have also needed corrective discipline as well. And you can probably guess that our children haven't always agreed with us on that corrective discipline or how it feels. Why, yes, Father, I agree. I do need to be sent to my room right now. I'll go right ahead. That's not exactly the conversations we have in our home. In fact, the older they get, the more we are aware they will probably disagree with what we say, and the more difficult it will be to care for them. So why risk corrective discipline at all, given the pain? Well, at one level, we know that a parent 
that never disciplines their child in this way, in a corrective way, they would actually be doing something far worse to their child, wouldn't they? They would be guilty of neglect. They would be guilty of not loving their child by allowing small problems to grow into big ones, even deadly ones. But when it comes to discipline in the church, there are actually three reasons behind it. And the first, believe it or not, is for the sake of the individual. Now, I realize this may sound surprising, given what Paul is telling the church to do. He is telling the church to no longer treat this man involved as if he was a Christian. And again, the reason he's not correcting the stepmom here is probably because she's not a part of the church, is my guess. But treating the one who is an active part of this church as if he is no longer a Christian, put, believe, putting him outside of the believing community in some concrete and some very formal ways, barring him from the Lord's Supper and no longer recognizing him as part of their body. The relationship has changed. It is extreme, and Paul is very straightforward about it. In fact, as Paul puts it, to hand him over to Satan, again, for the destruction of the flesh, which probably means uh, handing him over to the sphere of Satan, where Satan rules temporarily, meaning removing him from the church and the community of its loving concern and handing it, him over to a sphere that doesn't want his good and joy. The, the, the implica implications, like a parent might say to a kid, fine, You've made your bed, now sleep in it. Handing them over to the necessary implications of what comes. And even so, the action is serious, even though it is serious. We need to say this isn't to settle some sort of personal vendetta. It's not some sort of self-righteous judgmentalism. It isn't getting rid of or canceling some toxic person as we do today. No, Paul is actually upfront, not just about what he is telling them to do, but the purpose behind it, and that comes in verse 5. If you would look at this with me, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, Paul is advising, or he actually is requiring, an extreme action for the sake of true salvation and full restoration. You see, the action of this man isn't just outside the bounds of what God commands, but it indicates in some clear way to Paul and the rest of the church, and we assume that Paul knows more than he's sharing right here, that this man isn't a Christian in the first place. Then what if that is true, and he isn't? If that is genuinely true, and the man has believed himself to be a Christian, even while it may make him uncomfortable, isn't it good to no longer pretend that he is? Just like you may go into the doctor believing you are healthy, walking out of there no longer being convinced of that is actually for your good, isn't it? What ultimate good does him, even though they might be avoiding offending him temporarily, to continue to allow him to be on a path that they know leads only to death. If you found a friend was killing themselves through addiction or their diet, wouldn't you want to warn them to do whatever it takes to plead with them? Please stop, even if it was to change your relationship? Paul tells them to hand this man over so that 
the flesh, not meaning I don't think his body, but what is fleshly, what Paul will say in later books, this characteristic posture towards sin, this love and devotion to sin, this choosing sin as their master instead of Jesus, that that might die, that that posture towards sin might die, that they might finally fall in repentance and faith upon their king and be restored to him. But it's not just restoration to Jesus that Paul assumes here, I think. I think it's also restoration to the body of the church. In fact, referring to another case of church discipline, this actually happens throughout the Bible, this time in 2 Corinthians. Many think that this is the same individual involved, and for a variety of reasons, I don't think it's actually the same person here. We find someone who has gone through a very, again, uh, who has not only had a very public and very serious sin, but a kind of sin that has caused pain to the whole church. Everyone is wounded from what this individual has done. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it seems they've made a turnaround, that they've actually begun to repent and turn back to Christ. And here is what he says to that person. Verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so that you should rather turn to it, forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Isn't that a helpful command to pair this one with? In verse 10 of that same chapter, Paul uses some of the same language, in fact. He doesn't just, as he says here in this passage, say that the person who is in the offense should be judged in the presence of Christ. Couldn't have a more sobering statement. In in verse 10, in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, he says this individual is to be forgiven in the presence of Christ. Not just judged in the presence of Christ, but forgiven in the presence of Christ. He is requiring just this just as much as he is the first discipline. And I have to tell you, even as the thought of church discipline may not sound, I mean, could not sound more judgmental to a society like ours, even though our culture has no idea how to do correction like this, we say, again, live and let live unless it bothers me. We also don't know how to do restoration like this. Cultural analysts have said, and these are plenty of secular analysts, you can look into this, have said that our current culture is one of the most judgmental societies to have ever existed. And that includes plenty of non-religious people, in large part because of the growing influence of social media and widening political polarization. We have become better and clearer on who the enemies are. We have become crueler to one another in identifying who is on the wrong side of things. And we are in a culture that not only relegates people to the margins, but relegates them to the margins permanently. Labeling people with all sorts of new scarlet letters. If someone was to be identified on the wrong side of history today, they are permanently stained without the possibility of justification. We are a culture that has no idea how to do forgiveness and restoration like this. In Paul's mind, not only is restoration possible, it is necessary once repentance breaks through. No matter how messy or how much pain has been inflicted, no matter how difficult it is to forgive, forgiveness is required. The goal is restoration. And whatever corrective action a church may take, the process should reflect restoration. The church should ask, 
and hopefully as part of an incremental, grace-filled, proactive process that we looked at last week, not in deep detail, but if you want to see it, Matthew 18, Jesus lays out a process like this. Again, this the church should be asking as a part of a, that kind of process, probably long before something as extreme as this is being even considered, they should be asking what path is the most likely path to bring this person to repentance. The goal isn't just punishing or canceling or casting out. It is saying, by whatever means might I see them saved on the day of our Lord. To put this differently, the church should be forever a place that not only takes sin seriously, but chases down and embraces prodigal sons and daughters. A community that is ready and eager to say, welcome home. There's a second reason as well, and this is where Paul spends most of his time. For the sake of the church. For the sake of the church. And this one may be a little stranger for us. It's actually, again, the one that gets the most sustained attention from Paul. And Paul does so using an image that I'm sure you're all familiar with. Leaven, right? We have no idea probably what leaven even is. Okay, so leaven was used in the, uh, throughout uh, the centuries, um, including in ancient Israel, as what would uh, cause bread to rise. Yeast was very expensive. You didn't keep a supply of yeast like you might have in your cupboard. And so what you would have is a small piece of dough that had, that would had already had a rising agent in it. So you'd pick, pick off a piece of dough and you'd stick it back in your cupboard. And then you would, uh, the next time you were making bread, pull that piece and work it into the dough and the rising agent there that would infuse the rest. But the problem with doing that is that over time, the more you broke off these pieces of bread, the more uh, more likely it was to bring in some sort of uh, corruption, some sort of, uh, al- uh, some, uh, some sort of sickness, uh, salmonella, whatever it might be, might breed in that bread, right? So it's God and his mercy. It was why, why once a year he would tell them to cleanse out all the old leaven, to throw it out. So one of those things is there's also symbolism there and partially for the health of that church. But nonetheless, it was no wonder that over time, I mean, not church, over his uh, nation of Israel, uh, over, the t- over time, uh, that it was interesting, though, is uh, it makes sense then that leaven came to be associated with the, corruptive, uh, the corruption of sin and how sin worked. The sin doesn't stay stationary. It spreads, and it spreads everywhere if it's allowed to grow. Just as leaven would make a bread fluffy, it only takes the smallest amount of sin to ferment the entire thing. It has a way not just of spreading, though to the human soul, like spiritual cancer, Paul's point is it has a way of spreading through a community as well. Now I know Paul zooms in specifically on sexual sin here, but it's important to say that Paul isn't uniquely concerned about sexual sin. He is plenty concerned with it, as if, but, it, but it's also not the most important sign of spiritual health. It's not as if you were able to keep your life under control in that arena. You'd somehow mastered everything. Although it is certainly a very clear and public sign of whether one's deepest loyalties are to Jesus or not. You can often tell if someone is serious about following King Jesus by seeing the implications this has for their sex life. Probably why Paul has to address it so often is because his culture was very similar to ours. But notice verse 11. It's not just sexual immorality that he addresses here. What does Paul say? He, he puts sexual sin alongside greed. 
alongside drunkenness, alongside swindling, idolatry, and reviling. It's actually this last one, reviling, or you might say slander, or as we often call it, gossip. I've seen these, this corruption at work, the spread of sin, perhaps you have as well. Maybe you've seen how quickly private side conversations about someone, all out of concern for that poor person. How that breeds rumor. And those rumors breed resentment. And that resentment breeds a culture of divisiveness and cynicism. And like a deadly toxin or the first spark of a wildfire, I have seen, and perhaps you have, well, have as well, gossip spread in a matter of days, in a matter of hours, as soon as someone picks up that phone, spreading the destruction way outside of the circle of those who are involved. It's one of the reasons that Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, and then twice have nothing more to do with him. So for all that we're going to say about sexual sin, do we take it as seriously when it comes to division? I also need to say Paul isn't speaking to just one-time actions here. He doesn't assume that a Christian will never sin, or if they have sinned, that they're somehow forever branded. But when a particular sin begins to characterize a person, when it becomes a point of pride, when that person persistently chooses that sin over Jesus, when they are generally speaking, in fact, unaffected by the shame of it, they just want to avoid perhaps the consequences. Friend, that's what Paul is addressing here. And that private sin doesn't stay private for long. It always affects someone else. To put it a bit more directly, sin doesn't have to stay in the bedroom between consenting adults. It doesn't stay. And there are certain sins that have a particularly nasty effect on the life of a body. Just like a little cancer puts the whole body at risk, there are some sins that put the whole church at risk. Some sins that more quickly and visibly destroy the community of the church and Christ's reputation. And this is one of them, according to Paul. And one of the signs of the effect that it's already had actually may be in the fact that the Corinthians aren't just apathetic toward it. Did you notice that he crit criticizes their boasting? He is more serious about their boasting even than the man's sin. Why in the world would they be boasting? Well, I think perhaps it is because they are boasting that they have a man like this in their church. They're boasting about the man himself for, two for one, uh, one of these reasons, perhaps. Maybe because this person was particularly influential, and they couldn't believe that he would be giving their church the time of day. He was among them, and it was a really big deal to have that star athlete or whatever it might be. And criticizing him, I mean, think about how much they would lose. Or perhaps they're boasting for a very different reason, one we can identify with today, because... It showed off just how tolerant they were, what a culture of grace they could be. I mean, look at this, and we don't care. Similar to how a church might boast in being open and affirming today. Boasting about how non-judgmental they can be. 
friends, if that's the case, it is not just the sin that is a threat to the body, but of the very attitude towards sin that puts the body at risk. Why? Because that kind of posture towards sin deflates the distinctiveness of the church. It causes the church to blend into the background, no longer disrupting, no longer unique, and no longer compelling, but just another place where self calls the shots. As Paul puts it in verse 8, the result of that kind of attitude towards sin is a community of malice and evil, rather than one of sincere faith and a commitment to truth rather than a community clearly and distinctively set apart to God, a place where heaven touches earth. Instead, it just becomes like another institution where self reigns supreme. I want you to notice how tied this is then to verse 9 through 12, which I could tell you I could preach a whole sermon on, and I want to so badly, but I love you too much to make you go through that. Verse 9 through 12, even though I realize, again, this, uh, the whole process of church discipline can seem very judgmental, right? Some of us have already shut me out. Please don't. Please hear in these verses. Maybe this will catch your attention. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to notice the exact words that he uses in verse 18. Even though it seems, again, really judgmental, and he's going to use the words, is it not inside those, those inside the church you are to judge? So those of you who quote your favorite Bible verse, Judge not, lest you be judged, right? So, okay, read it in context with this passage, right? So, it's saying what to do? Judge, right? So, there's something he is saying to do here. But I want you to notice how he clarifies it. Is it not those inside the church you are to judge? Notice where he doesn't apply this judgment. Outside the church. And he is equally emphatic about it. Why would you not waste your time on judging those who are outside the community of faith? Because in a sense, we should expect those who are outside the church to act like they are outside the church. And that, I want to say that to you. If you are not a Christian here today, you experience that from religious people. Again, it is inappropriate. We want you to follow Jesus in, in faith and as your Lord. But we, we don't believe that simply cleaning up your life is enough. Again, what you need is Christ. Recon wrestle with his claims, who he is. Deal with him. Find him to be a trustworthy Lord, and the rest of it will begin to take care of itself. But Christians, don't expect those who are not to act as if they were. To agree with you about what you believe about Jesus. Again, as Paul puts it, when you try to apply this judgment to the world... If you tried to, you'd have to isolate yourself from it. You'd have to cut yourself off. It'd be like trying to sweep up a beach. Friends, it's the very opposite, in fact, of what the gospel would have you do. And I fear, unfortunately, many Christians have thought that they were combating evil, thought that they were on God's side because they have isolated. And Paul directly contradicts it. He would have you make friends, be involved, be invested in a in non-Christian community. Be an active witness of the gospel. Don't expect them to, to agree with you. Expect to feel a little awkward in those circumstances. And to know what your primary role is. It is not to police the behavior of those who do not confess faith in Christ. Only God can do that. It is the role instead for us to care for those who are inside. To preach the gospel 
and to help those who confess the gospel to walk in step with it. And when we get this backwards, is it any wonder that those outside the church want nothing to do with Christianity? That they want nothing to do with the gospel? That they want nothing to do with a gospel that spends too, mu too much of its time complaining about where the culture is heading, about what non-believers are doing, and how much it offends us? A gospel that lobs grenades over the fence, all the while it avoids in an internal war that may be tearing us apart. A gospel that only cleans the outside of the cup, to use Jesus' words, or whitewashes a tomb when everyone knows it's full of dead men's bones inside. That leads to the last reason church discipline matters, for the sake of the gospel. Now one of the things Grace and I have tried to take seriously in our house is the way that our kids talk to each other. Certainly, they, I'm just going to tell you, they bicker just as much as normal siblings would, right? There's nothing different about just because they're pastor's kids, right? They need to be given a lot of grace, right? Any kids, right? Just as their parents are going to mess, I mean, my kids' parents are going to mess up quite a bit. I can tell you. I can give you stories, right? There are certain ground rules, though, in our home for what we will and what we will not say to each other, ever. In fact, occasionally, you might hear Grace and I say to one of our kids, we don't talk to one another that way in this family. Well, a smart-alecky child might say, uh, yes, we do, Father, I just did. But that misses the point, right? I don't mean in saying that this, this, this behavior isn't physically possible. I mean that it doesn't belong in our family. It has nothing to do with what it means to be a family. Or to use a different illustration, say you were at Disneyland and uh, you saw someone slide under the ropes in front of you. Does anybody, that just gets you real mad. See somebody cut in line, right? So, okay. What might you, you, you might hear somebody in that line say, uh, hey, you can't do that. And the person would say, well, technically I just did, right? You're not saying that they, it's not physically possible. You're saying that kind of behavior is ridiculous, and it definitely doesn't belong at Disneyland. Notice Paul says something very similar in verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. I don't know about you, but I find this fascinating. Why does Paul say that they should formally remove this man from the church? It is not just because it is ultimately best for him. And it is not just because, again, that characteristic unrepentance might spread among the believers if they don't take it seriously. It's not just for the sake of the individual. It's not just for the sake of the church. It is because of who they are now. It's because of their identity in Christ. The reason they are to act as a holy community set apart from the world for God is because that is what they are now. Why? Because they have cleansed themselves? Not at all. But because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What's Paul's point? Just as the death of the Passover lamb broke the back of their slavery, just as it marked God's people off from Egypt and belonging to God, so Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, has broken the grip of a greater slavery, marking us off as his own forever. 
Does this mean that Christians or the community we are a part of will ever be completely free from sin? No. But when we are faced with sin, there is one way that a Christian is to respond. One way that a believer, if they are born again, will respond to sin with repentance and with faith. Turning from their sin toward Christ, that is the automatic reflex reflex of a Christian. And every single time they do, they adorn the gospel. They show that no matter how powerful sin's hold on them might be, it will never characterize them again. It is not who they are now. I want you to hear these verses in chapter 6, just a few verses later. Or do you know, or do you not know, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, notice how many sins are included right there. And some of us are like, oh, that's really uncomfortable. But I want you to notice, there's a hidden comfort here. Notice in verse 11, and such were some of you. Does anybody find that to be comforting? That in the Corinthian church were plenty of people who came from really messy backgrounds, who probably felt like they didn't belong. If that's you, if you feel like you're the the last person who should ever be a part of something like this, read this passage over and over again. Such were some of you. They came from the most messy of backgrounds as you can imagine, maybe like your uh, your own. They came from idolatry, adultery, same-sex relationships. Some were even swindlers and thieves. And yet, what does Paul also say about them? That they have been washed. That they have been sanctified. That they are justified. Why? Is it because of their own resume? We can see clearly that is not the case. But through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, as the hymn puts it, Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. What a gospel, friends. And it is because of that gospel, Paul can expect that faith in Jesus would make a radical difference in your lives. Jesus doesn't intend that the church would blend into its surroundings. He has recreated us in his own image to make visible the character and goodness of God, to make the gospel itself visible. And the question, friends, is what kind of gospel does our community display? Remaining indifferent to the very thing that Jesus died to free us from, even though it may seem more tolerant, it is as ridiculous as the Hebrew slave remaining back in Egypt. It preaches a false gospel, a gospel that may free from the consequences of sin, but in no way frees us for a new kind of life. A false gospel that offers forgiveness, but does not offer transformation. Friends, a thinned out gospel, no matter how good it sound, sounds, saves no one. And it lies about Jesus and the welcome he, stem, he extends. It is not a blanket welcome to all who like him. It is a welcome to all who would follow him. And someone who hopes to do so without dying to themselves, without leaving sin and self behind, they are not a part of the kingdom. And the worst thing for them, the worst thing for their community, and the worst thing for the gospel itself is to affirm them as if they were. To boil all of this down, what church discipline aims to do, like membership, is to make clear the what and the who of the gospel. 
to make clear the assurances and demands of the gospel and to reveal all of those who are walking in step with it. It doesn't do so perfectly, but it means there may come a time when a church does need to remove its affirmation to no longer treat someone as a believer, not because they've committed some unpardonable sin. Just look back at the list in chapter 6. Because a person whose life continues to walk this path, who continues to submit to sin and self as its boss, should not be affirmed as if they were following Christ instead. Friends, again, if the church was just an event, or if it was just a building, or if it was just some social club, none of this matters, and the process like this isn't worth it. It's too costly. Don't do it. But if, the, if it is the place instead where the presence and power of God breaks through, if it is the outpost of the kingdom on earth, if it is a place where the gospel is made visible, then we need to be who we are. We need to act who, according to who we are. Yes, that means real lines need to be drawn. Uncomfortable conversations need to be had. Painful decisions need to be made. And no one should rush into or get a kick out of this process. But if it is what might cause the gospel to shine out all the brighter, then church discipline may be one of the most loving things we could ever do.